what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. As you get older, as you lean towards your final years on Earth, especially if you're a public person, you often start to think of your legacy, what you're leaving behind for generations after you, the mark that you've left on the world. Joan Baez is one of the most celebrated folk singers of our time. She's an icon of peace and justice and activism. But she'll tell you why she felt her legacy wasn't an honest one and the true story she wanted to tell in a new documentary. Joan Baez, coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So today you're going to hear my conversation with a living legend of folk music. So it only feels appropriate that we start out by listening to her voice. Don't sing love songs, you'll wake my mother. She's sleeping here, right by my side. And in her right hand, silver dagger. Gorgeous. That's Joan Baez singing a song that can be traced back to the 17th century, as she calls it, the Silver Dagger. Joan Baez, incredibly important voice in modern music. There are so many artists who have been influenced by Joan Baez. There's so many that they probably don't even know they have been influenced by Joan Baez. Standing on stage with an acoustic guitar in her bare feet, she went from playing coffee houses in Boston to folk festivals all over the world to prestigious theaters like Carnegie Hall. She became known for her activism, particularly around the Vietnam War. She marched and she protested with Martin Luther King Jr. in Washington and in Montgomery, Alabama. Her relationship with Bob Dylan became like an early tabloid thing back in the 60s. And yeah, she's had a big life and she's in her 80s and she's going to leave a big legacy. But is it an honest one? That's the question Joan tells me she keeps asking herself. Is my legacy an honest legacy? And it's one she tries to answer in the new documentary, Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, which is, I'll say in a word, revealing Joan gave the filmmakers access to letters and recordings and diaries and a locked storage unit. Like, these are recordings of her therapy sessions and her family's therapy sessions. And it becomes a look at what actually comes with being the voice of a generation. That documentary is out now. I got the chance to speak with Joan Baez all about it. Uh, lovely to meet you. I'm, I'm such a big fan of yours. Thank you very much. How, what is the experience of watching your life back on a documentary like? Watching the film, I learn a lot that I didn't know. Um, probably that speaks to the quality of the film, getting my older sister to talk, you know, getting things that I didn't know about. I mean, I, I knew there were difficulties with the sisters and then they came out openly and could talk about it. My son could talk about his feelings, you know, more openly and generously and forgivingly than I'd been able to hear them before. Um, things like that opened up when I saw it. 
And because I hadn't heard those, I, you know, when they make a film, I've got nothing to do with, you know, with it until it's done. So these were things that I saw for the first time, revelatory and, and deep sadness at some things, you know, like like my dad and my, my son's feelings about his childhood. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, it, there's, it's, it, sometimes it's nice to have your life sort of celebrated in front of you, but the, I never thought about that. The the other side is that people will speak candidly about you without you without you in the room. Yeah. And, you, and it's, uh, go ahead. The, the point go ahead. of the film when it got started was that I wanted to have an honest legacy, to put forth an honest legacy. Um, and so that's kind of what, what we did. What do you mean by that, but to have an honest legacy? Uh, probably to talk about things that people don't usually talk about and also to just be blatantly honest about the things that I'm not really comfortable with. Like I battled that scene of my vocalizing. I didn't want that in there because it was too embarrassing because I thought it sounded stupid. And then I, okay, but for the quality of the film and for what we were setting out to do, it was appropriate. I mean, it made sense that it was not a breeze my whole lifetime to just sing. It became very difficult. I I love what you mean there, because I think that there is room for an artist of your stature to have a dishonest legacy. What I mean by that is a is a legacy that's only only glowing portraits of of protests and and sold out concerts. Yep. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, down to warts and wrinkles, I think it's important to go ahead and and do this kind of a documentary. And, you know, because of some of the more sensitive material, I couldn't have done it until my family was gone. No, it would be too, could be too hurtful or confusing. So that's one of the, one of the reasons we did it now. Joan, you gave a lot to this documentary. I mean, Diaries, um, home family movies. Um, I was particularly struck by like tapes of of therapy. Yeah. Talk to me about how that felt to 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 give that stuff to somebody. Well, you have to be you have to totally trust, which I did. I've been friends with Karen O'Connor, um, director one of the three directors, for decades. So I knew her as a friend. I also knew her as a filmmaker. And her films were, you know, they were magnificent. So I knew what I was stepping into. I knew that I wouldn't know when I had, you know, we started off as a movie about my last tour. And then one day I just handed them the key to my storage unit. I'd never been in there. So in the film, when I walk in, that's the first time I'd ever been in there. So I was as stunned as anybody else to find the extent of what my mom had kept, you know, and and from childhood, from early childhood, these, my father was a camera buff and he had eight millimeter and he took, took pictures of us kids from the very beginning um, so that was in there. And then the tapes, I remember making tapes to my, to my mother and father from being on the road at age 21, but I had never heard them back. So it was, <laughs> it was, it was a total trust. Here are the keys. I'm out of here. And that's what made the film what it is. How did you feel when you heard, you heard him back? Uh, different things. Some things I thought were, you know, for me were, were splendid and some things were just too sorrowful to even think about. 
You know, my father's saying, I wish we were closer. I love you. Goodbye, honey. Whoa. You know, each time I hear it, it's just heart wrenching. And, um, you know, and my son as well, for all the years we've had to make up for it. Still, when he was little, I saw the degree to which he felt that his mother's presence was a non-presence. Um, those were important things for me to, to hear. Sing love songs You'll wake my mother She's sleeping here Right by my side The, um, your family comes up so, so much in, in the film, and I just kind of want to go into some of the meat of the stories that are, are told in the film. And I'll start out by talking about some of the early days. You know, you, you're, you're singing songs with your sister. You're singing songs on your own. This has always been very idyllic to me. I talked to Margaret Atwood about this one time, about, like, seeing you in Boston when you were, you know, when you were still playing coffee houses. And then, then you become the big thing. Like, like pretty quickly, you become... The, the big thing in, in American music, you're on the cover of Time magazine and like, like Joan Baez becomes the, the kind of the symbol of the new, the new folk movement. And I have never seen a documentary talk about this before, that that kind of fame can have, and money, can have an impact on your family. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize it either till I hear them talking about um, you know, me throwing money around <laughs> to, to my family. Here, you guys, you, you can have this. And then how it was infuriating to my father. Um, and my sisters were confused by it. And, um, yeah, for my father, my sudden being recognized like that was a challenge. And, like, you know, like a, not, a lot of people, I've heard the fa father will boast about them. Uh, to other people, but can't really bring himself to say, that was great, honey. You know, uh, many, many layers to all of this. I thought he would have been like just proud that you were making money and he wouldn't have to worry about you. Like I was surprised that he had this feeling of, well, you know, I had to work for every dollar I had and you're just getting <laughs> up and singing songs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I understand it now, but, um, you know, it was hard for me because I wanted to make everybody happy and that seemed to be impossible. And also, you know, in the film, I began to see really why. I mean, really why my older sister had to move away and become invisible. That she, you know, I sucked all the oxygen out of the room and I hadn't known to which degree that that affected her, that, that, that it was that more than anything else. It was her famous sister that, you know, that where she had to go somewhere where she could just be without... The shadow, right? And your and your other sister wants to sing, and she wants to be a performer. But she's also, you know, in the, there's recordings of her in the press being compared to her, compared to yeah. her sister. Yeah, and you know, and that thing that I say in the film, she asked me what I think of her pursuing this as a career, and I said it's going to be hard to always be in my shadow. And yeah. you know, I mean, she her mind was already set, and maybe I should have said absolutely. Just go for it. Maybe I should have said that. Um, and I was trying to, but I was being honest. I was thinking it's going to be so difficult. And uh, and it was. And still, she still resented my having said that. Kind of a no-win situation. Go away from my window 
I, I realize I'm probably never going to get a chance to talk to you again, unless I'm very lucky. So I, I, I wanted to ask you this, because I'm always very curious. I come from folk music, too. That's what I did up until I started hosting the show. I, I toured around playing traditional music and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and you are one of the greatest, like, interpreters of um, folk song to me. And the reason... Um, Behind that, and I can really see this in the film, is that you sing these very well-known songs like you know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and, and, and like Silver Dagger. You managed to keep the integrity of the original traditional song while very much making it your own. Is there a guiding principle to how you approach that? Not consciously, I'm sure. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is the image of, I have of myself wanting to keep my feet planted on the ground, in the earth. Uh, I didn't want to be an opera singer because that, you know, something too highfalutin about, although I could have been. Um, it was, and then it was, then it was Pete Seeger and the people I saw doing, doing what they sang about. And that had a huge impression, impression on me. But the early, you know, I, I didn't write, you know, for the first 10 years. So the early music was steeped in tradition. I mean, I, I had this thing where it, it had to be, traditional as in I couldn't learn it from a book. I'd learn it from another person who learned it from his grandpa or whatever the hell was going on, you know. And and so purity was a big deal in that. And um and then I suppose I suppose I'm guessing I'm shooting from the hip here, this singing to the public and watching their reaction to see where I wanted them to join in and be part of it. Plus over the years getting over my stiffness about it so that I could um you know, I could evolve into something less strict and, you know, give my voice and myself a little more room to sing and, and for joy. The film um, goes on to talk about sort of the changes in, in, in the folk music scene, especially when Bob Dylan starts coming around. Um, Joan, I love that you call him Bobby in the film. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. <laughs> he was Bobby. You know, I sang... Um, I sang a, a dedication to John Prine when he was in the audience one time. I called him Bobby because that's how I knew him. And his wife apparently commented later about nobody calls him Bobby anymore. Um, nobody calls me Joni anymore. You know, we were kids. We had baby fat still, Bob and me. What was that like when he first came on the scene? Like, what was he? He seemed like a bit of a like a big a bit of a ragamuffin there, just kind of showing up. Mm -hmm. You know, it says so in the film, too. I mean, it was a ragamuffin. He was more than a ragamuffin. He liked his ragamuffinness. <laughs> and apparently I did, too. You know, it's the, it brings out the mother in you. I remember I bought him that jacket, that black jacket. And he wore it to please me, but he hated it. He wanted this weird, bratty little, <laughs> looks, little jacket look, so he threw up on it. And he was happy with that. How many roads? I mean, he was an extraordinary individual, and all of those things included, you know, his ragamuffinness, um, and then, you know, out of all that carved, you know, out of this like, rose quartz, and you chip off the edges, and there was this extraordinary talent inside there. And, you know, whatever he did before or after, I kind of categorize as artist liberty. 
because nobody else could give us songs like that. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Your relationship with Bob has been sort of well speculated about and well written about over the years. And it was great in the documentary to see it from your perspective. Mm -hmm. What side of that relationship do you think this documentary reveals? The first thing that comes to my mind is that that um, moment when he's so everybody's you know critical of him saying, no, he didn't have a girlfriend. He was so young. I don't know what was going on in his head. But back then, then you feel rejected and go through all the stuff that we went through. And I think it's important for me to just say that what happened in the last few years, I was painting his portrait from that period when he looked like that when he was a kid. And and I put on his music and I started to cry. And I wept for, you know, painting that portrait for days. And I on and off I was just weeping and and feeling nothing but gratitude. All of the bullshit just fell away. And uh, for the timing, for his relationship with me, for the music, for our closeness, all of it. And that has remained that way. I have nothing bad to say. I mean, I'll joke about him because he's a nutcase. But it's but it's <laughs> really, you know, but it's not resentful and all the things it was for so many years. I love that though, that 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 when you when you were painting his portrait, anything you were holding on to just sort of sort sort of slipped away. It just really I was it was epiphany. I was really amazed. I had no plans for that. It just happened and it's been wonderful. You know, much of this documentary also focuses on your activism, your anti-war activism, your humanitarian activism. I wanted to play a, a clip for you. Just take a listen to this. Good evening. Welcome to Sunday. Tonight in the Bear Pit, to sing and to talk, one of the world's great singers, Miss Joan Baez. From 1967 on CBC's Sunday, that's a little bit of Joan Baez on that show. Canada comes up. This is a Canadian show, and Canada comes up a handful of times in the show. You know, in the in the documentary, there's one audio journal where you remember a performance in Vancouver. There's a diary. There's a letter you write, and it's sent from the Chateau Laurier in in Ottawa. How do you look back on your relationship with Canada uh, uh, back then? It was always good. I re- what I'm remembering is at the beginning when you were still doing the British National Anthem. Yeah, they're playing God Save the Queen. It says, I have this thing about refusing to salute the American flag. I refuse to salute anybody's flag. So I'd have to stash myself backstage until it was over. Um, <laughs> and, anthems, and then I would come out <laughs> guilt-free. <laughs> I remember joking about the fact that they were smart audiences, probably smarter than the U.S. audiences. I made myself popular in the States, but that's how I felt. Did, did Canada help you? Because I know Pete Seeger talked about when he was blacklisted, he could still perform in Canada. And when you were, you know, when you were deep in your anti-war uh, activism, I know stages and, and TV shows weren't always welcome to you in the United States. Did you find, did Canada help you like that? What happens in places like Canada and outside of my own United States was there's a feeling of 
freedom, which I don't even know how I work that out in my head. But yeah, there's a, a different kind of breathing of the air when you're somewhere that you know, well, you're not going to be criticized, I assume. Although this, this has proved to me that I was doing the right thing. <laughs> and if God is on our side, he'll stop the next war. Coming up in the show, more of my conversation with Joan Baez after this. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favorite song in his entire catalog, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Farewell, Angelina, the bells of the crown are being stolen by bandits. I must follow the sound. The triangle tingles and the trumpets play slow. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the legendary folk singer Joan Baez. There's a new documentary out now called Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. Joan, if you're not as familiar with her, is one of the most important folk singers of, let's say, maybe the century. If you've seen anyone on stage with an acoustic guitar singing a song... Joan Baez is kind of responsible for that, especially if they're up there singing about peace and justice. And this documentary is a remarkably intimate look at her career and her personal life. And for the very first time in this documentary, Joan opens up about abuse that she and her sister allegedly suffered at the hands of her father. And the way that story is told is through these old tapes from therapy sessions And it's in these therapy sessions that Joan remembers the abuse that she had blocked out for years. She also opens up about how while she was, you know, famous, like on the cover of Time magazine famous, she was experiencing mental health issues and panic attacks long before we as a society talked so openly about it. So that's where we pick things up. Here's more of my conversation with Joan Baez. There are a couple of personal revelations in this film that we as fans of yours didn't know about. First, you talk about the debilitating panic attacks you uh, went through your entire life. How did those attacks manifest? How debilitating were they? Um, They were, for instance, lying on the floor of the dressing room, shaking, um, sick to my stomach, and telling somebody, finally, just get me up and kind of push me toward the stage because I was too terrified to just get up and walk there. When I got there, I was okay and I would sing. Um, but, you know, they were, we didn't call them panic, panic attacks back then, but it was just kind of one after another. And I would, I would judge my time by the ha- amount of time I had between them to you know, enjoy myself or feel like a quasi-normal human being, and then it would strike again. Um, so yeah, it debilitating. It debilitating. The other um, revelation from the film 
are in those incredibly personal recordings you 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 put out from the therapy sessions where you know both your your own therapy session your sister Mimi's therapy sessions and your parents therapy sessions and in them um, the revelation is is offered that you and your sister uh, were abused as as children what was it like hearing those tapes again and and having them in this film well, what I realized is that what I want to do with them now is collect them all and have a nice big bonfire because I've done, I've been through it. I've been through it for a second time. I've offered what I can to the public. You know, it's curated so that they really, in my mind, get what they can possibly absorb because it's crazy. You know, that the, the tapes are crazy. I was crazy. And you try to fashion something that people will be able to understand at all. But for me, um, it's like other things in the film. I didn't remember those tapes. I mean, I remember those years of what happening, what was happening and, and collecting memories, which had been, you know, unconscious for half a century. And, and I always want to repeat what I said in the film, which is that for whatever degree that abuse happened, that my parents had no memory of it. I figure if I took a half a century to get down to that level to remember that, and they had no, I wanted to, and they didn't want to. So there remained denial and a block. And in the end, the forgiveness is all about the fact that I, they didn't remember and they must have suffered the same thing or they wouldn't have um, passed it on because I believe that kind of abuse is generational. It was, it was a bit, Moving, I suppose, and, and unexpected maybe to see, to hear a revelation like that. And then, yeah, to see you and your and your mother together in her later years and you and your, and, and your father together in those later years, too. No, it was the only, oh, there's some saying, I don't know where it came from. You can forgive a little bit and feel a little bit better. Or you can forgive a lot and feel a lot better. Or you can forgive everything and be free. And it feels as though I reached, managed to reach that point with my parents. The last, um, one of the last scenes in the film is one of my favorites. It's, I think it's your last performance of your farewell tour and you're at the Beacon Theater in, in New York. You're singing Dink Song. You're singing, you're singing Fare Thee Well by yourself. And it's your last performance of your very last show. Fare thee Come off stage and you're hugging your band and you're and you're hugging people. How did you feel in in that moment? I think I had I felt a sense of what was really going on. It'd be hard to absorb after 60 years of doing what I had just done and not knowing what I would feel like about it in the future. And sort of beginning to to realize that I was losing that traveling family. Um no. Dirk and pals and the various musicians I'd had on and off for decades that that was done. So I knew it would take a while to really realize that. But that night, you know, we had prepared so much for it, the touring to be ending that um, I think I had absorbed it enough so that I could just be present for the people who were there, whom I loved and worked with. Um, so, you know, it was, yeah, there was a sense that this is it. When you look back at this film and you, you get to see your honest life um, played out for you, mm -hmm. 
Is there something that you're most proud of? You know, what comes to my mind is I'm most proud of the fact that I was able to um, become friends with my son. And that's because he was willing to go to therapy with me and figure it out. Yeah. It's not all the grand stuff. It's, you know, it's family. It's my boy. And being able to rectify, you know, past my absence. Yeah, I think if there's one thing I took from this film, it's that it's that behind this sort of like you describe yourself as sort of like a Virgin Mary figure, uh, <laughs> this great folk musician. Um, there was a human with a family behind it the whole time, as there is for for all for everybody. Uh, Joan, yeah. I really loved I loved this film, and I love getting the chance to talk to you. Thanks for making the time. Hey, thank you very much. Take care. singing a song by Bob Dylan or Bobby. Before that, my conversation with Joan Baez, her new documentary about her life called Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, is out now. All right, that is it for the show today. Thanks so much to Joan Baez for um, for talking to me. I, I have to tell you, like when I created a little bucket list when I started on this uh, show, uh, Joan Baez was on on that list, so it's very cool to get a chance to talk to her. Especially cool that I got to talk to her from my hometown. I was in St. John's when we did that interview, which was I don't know that was a bit of a bit of a trip for me to be honest. Um, uh, Conan O'Brien, by the way, everyone wants to know the number one. It's Conan O'Brien. Uh, and if you look at the other episode we put up today, it's my conversation with Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies, and we go into the history behind their biggest song, One Week. If I had a million dollars, I'd listen to that podcast. All right. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.